What's up, gang? It's good to see you this morning. Uh, today, we are continuing a series called Disciple. Uh, we started a couple of weeks ago. Um, last week, uh, we uh, talked about uh, one of the most famous uh, apostles, and today we're going to talk about another one. Before we hop into that, if you'll take just a couple of moments, turn with me to Luke chapter 6, if you have your Bible. Uh, we're going to begin there. While you're turning there, I want to welcome those that are joining us on our Edgewood campus. Uh, they're uh, linked on with us right now uh, simultaneously, and we're uh, grateful to have them and the technology to connect with them, but also uh, other people that are joining us at home or around the country or even other parts of the world. We're so grateful for that. What a, a, an amazing thing to think that people uh, hang out with us on a Sunday morning here in Van Zandt County in other parts of the world. Uh, that's pretty humbling. Um, so when, when we think about disciple, you see that. I think there's something that normally comes to our mind. And when we think about that, we typically probably think about the 12. Uh, we think, oh, they're, they're the disciples. I think oftentimes that can be a little confusing because I do think that Jesus designates very clearly a difference between merely just a disciple and the apostles, the 12. And I think I can show you that as we did a couple of weeks ago. But let me just show, share with you real quickly what a disciple is. Here's why it matters is because not only are the 12 disciples, but there were many others that were disciples and so can you be. And so here's a disciple. A disciple is simply a learner. Uh, you can call him an apprentice if you'd like, a student, but it's someone who believes in the ideas and the principles of a particular person, indeed a master. In our case, it's Jesus. In the case of the apostles, it was Jesus. And then what you do is you try to live the way that person lived. You emulate what they did. The apostle Paul said to the church of Corinth this way, 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1, imitate me as I imitate who? Christ. And so that's the desire of a disciple is to become what their master is. When we think about this idea of a disciple, um, it was certainly a group of ordinary, uneducated, fallible men who were uh, in some ways, if you could identify it in East Texas term, redneck fishermen that followed a master. Uh, we know for sure out of the 12 disciples, four of them at least were fishermen, uh, we also know um, that there was one who was a tax collector. We know that there was one um, who was a, a zealot, uh, in some ways um, uh, insurgents. I mean, wanted to uh, overthrow uh, the government and usurp their authority. We know another one was a traitor. We know enough about them. And so last week, we just began jumping into the apostles. Here they are. This is who they are in Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 12. And following, it says, in these days, he went out to the mountain to pray. That's Jesus. And all night he continued in prayer to God. Jesus prays all night about the selection of the next group of names that he's going to list. Verse 13, when it came day, he called his disciples and chose from them 12. So we know that the disciples, these apprentices, students, were a collection of people, potentially dozens, and Jesus goes, these 12 are going to follow me and become apostles. And here's what a disciple is. It is, a, it is a disciple, a learner, a student who becomes a preacher and then ultimately becomes a world changer. It is someone who goes on a journey from following Christ with your life to changing the world with what God has entrusted to your care. It's a steward. That's who they are. And he calls the 12. Verse 14, first Simon, who he named Peter, Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, who's called the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Last week, we talked about Peter. And here's what's interesting. Peter's name, as we mentioned last week, was used 160 plus times in the New Testament alone. When you add the two other names that that Peter was known for, Simon, who's also called Peter. Uh, you can add another um, dozen or so. When you add the name Cephas, which Jesus gave to him, uh, according to uh, John chapter one, then you can add another collection. 185, 190 times Peter's name is used. But Peter is not the only disciple. Matter of fact, the one we're gonna look at today is his brother, Andrew, which is in Luke chapter six, verse 14. Andrew is the brother of Peter. But here's what's interesting. Peter's name is Rock. 
Andrew's name means manly. Uh, so he is a man's man. He's a fisherman. We know that. Uh, we know that he lived in Bethsaida for a time. Uh, we know that at some point they moved to Capernaum. It was at Capernaum that Andrew lived alongside in the same house, uh, apparently it was the brother Peter. Uh, apparently he lived there and was crashing uh, the pad of Peter and his wife and their mother-in-law was there as well. Uh, we don't know much more about Andrew's home life other than that. You know, he might've been a bachelor, you know, just kind of hanging out at his brother's house from time to time. He might've been a moocher, if you'd like to call that, right? Um, we don't know a whole lot more about that. But what we do know is that he was a, a fisherman from Capernaum. Uh, we know that he was in some ways rather obscure. So you got Peter, who his name is mentioned 185 to 190 times throughout the New Testament. You got Andrew and his name is mentioned no more than 12 times in all the New Testament. 190 times, 12 times. Now, what's interesting is when you see Andrew's name listed and you'll see it a couple times in a few moments, it's oftentimes that he is referred to as Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter. He lives in the shadow of his brother, Peter. Peter is the outspoken one. Andrew is the one who in some way seems to be content to not say much. He seems to be the one who is rather not only obscure, but in some ways could seem in a lack of prominence of his brother. And I'm just going to argue today that um, he actually has great prominence, but you have to be looking for it. And you have to see it in just a collection of times his name's mentioned. Mentioned about 12 times. Um, there's a, about five different lists of the disciples' names. And you got to realize that every time the disciples or the apostles, the 12 are mentioned, Andrew's name's there. So you got to take all those away. You start narrowing the list. Somebody was asking me today in the lobby, uh, hey, how do you compile the list? Like, how do you even get to the place that you are? And I go, well, I, I just begin and I start. And so I said, last week, I said, I spent several hours literally going one at a time, combining every single list of Peter's name. Because I said, I wanted to do the hard work. I said, this week, I only had 12. I said, so it reduced my time in a significant way. But as you begin to look at Andrew and who he is, you see some really important things. And so I know there's four prominent texts that you're going to see Andrew in. Um, one of them is actually listed in Mark chapter 3. We're not going to turn there. But Jesus is there with four disciples. He's there with Peter. James, John, which is the famous three who was with Jesus at the transfiguration, who are with Jesus in other places. But in this particular text that Mark writes, Andrew is also there. And Jesus spends time on the Mount of Olives with those four men telling them about the signs of the end of the age. You can go read it there. You see Andrew is there. Um, there are other times where he's not in what you would call the prominent inner circle, which is Peter, James, and John. In this case, he was. So the other three texts that you see his name mentioned clearly are ones we're about to read. One of them indicates that though Andrew was rather obscure, he is likely the first disciple to follow Jesus. And here's what we know. He follows Jesus after it appears that he's been taking a sabbatical from some time from his fishing trade to follow another rather interesting guy named John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the forerunner, the Elijah of sorts, who's preparing the way for the Messiah. He was an interesting guy, and we don't have time to uh, unpack who John the Baptist was, but we do know, according to John chapter 1, and you can turn there with me, that this guy, Andrew, was there following John the Baptist as a disciple, an apprentice, a student, and a learner from a prominent person, and his name was John the Baptist, Andrew had taken a hiatus from fishing for a little while to follow him. And you see it in John. So in John chapter one, if you have your Bibles turned there, we'll stay in John for really the most of our time this morning. But we'll begin in John chapter one. If you're kind of new to the Bible, 
Like, I don't even know where that is. Uh, you have the Gospels in the New Testament. You got Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who they're called the synoptic Gospels because they write similarly. You can see many accounts of the same thing if you overlay them. Then you get to John. John writes altogether different on his own. He gives signs of who Jesus is so that you might believe in him. He says that in John chapter 21. Now, the reason I tell you that is because John is going to record some things differently than the other, uh, the other writers of the New Testament. And we're grateful for it because we wouldn't know as much about Andrew if it wasn't for John and his narrative. So here it is, John chapter one, beginning in verse 35, it says, the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and he said, behold, the lamb of God. Now, this is the second time that John the Baptist says this. In John chapter 1, verse 29, the day ahead of that, John looked at Jesus and said, behold, there's the Lamb of God. He gives him a different title though. He says, he's the one who takes away the sin of the world. Here it is, a collection of verses later, he says, hey, look, there's, there's the Christ. There's the one who is the Lamb of God. And it seems, verse 37, the two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. So you know there's two disciples who were following John the Baptist. They hear him say this about Jesus and they basically look at John the Baptist and go, hey dude, it has been fun and it has been real. It hasn't been real fun. I'm gonna follow him for the real fun. And so they, they leave and they follow Jesus. Now you might think, well, John the Baptist is upset by this, but he's not because his life mission is to prepare the way for the Christ. When he says, here he is, Andrew, at least one of the two disciples goes, deuces. And he, he says, I'm going to follow the Christ. Matter of fact, look at it. Here it says, verse 38, Jesus turned and saw them. That's the two following and said to them, hey, what are you seeking? And they said to him, rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, well, come and, come and you'll see. So they came and they saw where he was staying and they stayed with him for that day for it was about the 10th hour. Now, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, there he is. Now look, Simon Peter's brother. <laughs> he first found his own brother, Simon, and then said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is interesting to note, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus and looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John, and you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. And what's interesting is we look at this transition and we think, okay, that's, that's crazy because Andrew goes to his brother, brings his brother to Jesus. Jesus automatically turns his attention, names Peter, the rock, Cephas, gives him a new name. And we think the transition means more about Peter than it does about Andrew which is Simon Peter's brother. But I want you to look at something here that's really important because it's the theme of Andrew's life. The first thing is this, he is mentioned as one of the two disciples. We don't know who the other disciple is. Andrew is the only one mentioned. We would presume to believe that John, the author of this book, who is also one of the 12 apostles, is likely saying he's the other one, but we don't know for sure. What we do know is that Andrew was one of the first two disciples to leave the ministry of John the Baptist and follow the ministry of Jesus. After spending an entire day with him, Andrew has come to the place that he has concluded that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the Son of God, that he is the one promised by God that was foretold even back to Abraham in his days that would make the nation of Israel great. And Andrew says, I'm going to follow him. He believes so strongly in following Jesus that he goes and he gets his brother. And he says, listen, you have to come and you have to meet the Christ. We found him. He is indeed the Messiah. Now, while that's important is this, okay? Is that Andrew doesn't seem to mind that he is Simon Peter's brother. He, he doesn't seem to have any contempt or animosity that his brother is the loudmouth, brash guy that oftentimes sees himself in a place of prominence. He doesn't seem to be bothered by that. I would presume to believe that Andrew knew that if he brought his brother to Christ, that his brother might actually have a greater role 
as a disciple or follower of Jesus than he did, simply because he could probably realize that in his life, his brother has a different personality, a different intellect, a different ideal than he does. He knows they're different. But here's what I love about Andrew. Andrew is the guy who is absolutely comfortable in his own skin. Y'all know that person? We like to say it in our family that this person just beats their own drum. Like we have one child that literally beats to his own drum and he creates his own beats and he really doesn't care what you think or I think or anyone else thinks. Just so you understand, he's the guy that when every other person is talking about their son getting, going fishing, he's like, dude, I'm thinking I'm going to get me a perm. <laughs> okay. Are you sure about this? Couldn't be more sure. He doesn't care. It's just who he is. It's the way that God created him to be, which is an incredible gift because he's never having to worry about living in the shadow of someone else. He's never having to have animosity because of this or that. And friends, that seems to be indicative of Andrew. Andrew seems to be a guy who knows that the greatest thing he needs in life is the Messiah. And if it's what he needs, he believes other people need it as well. And he knows that if he needs it, he might as well make sure his brother, who seems to be a person he thinks fondly of, needs Christ as well. But see, friends, that would be what Andrew becomes. Andrew is what I would like to call a social connector. Andrew is a guy who, though he doesn't, he's not recorded in the scripture as preaching to the multitudes. He never writes an epistle. He never writes letters. He never authors a book. He is never a church planter. He never, he never does anything majorly significant. Matter of fact, after being recorded in a list in the early parts of Acts with all the other disciples and their names, he's never mentioned again in all the scriptures. And yet he is very significant. And I'm gonna show you why. One, he connects his brother to Christ but turn over to, to John chapter six. I want you to see who else he connects with Christ. <coughs> In John chapter six, Jesus and his disciples have had a full day of ministry. We know according to Matthew, if you overlay the text, that it's getting late in the day and Jesus is wanting to do something miraculous. He's actually wanting to feed a group of people food. And we know that according to the scriptures that there's about 5,000 men, not counting women or children. So let's just say that there's 10 to 14,000 people there. Jesus is, according to John chapter six, verse three, going up on the mountainside and it's there that he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. This is exactly a year, the Passover before Christ's death, burial and resurrection. And so it's at this Passover that he wants to do something significant. He lifts his eyes up. Then seeing that the large crowd was there coming toward him, Jesus says to Philip, which is one of the apostles, hey, where are we going to buy bread so that these people may eat? And he said this to test him, which is important, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip then answers him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough to feed all these people. I mean, it's for each of them would get so little. So Philip goes, look, 200 days wages is not going to be enough to feed thousands of people. Now, what's interesting is, is if we didn't have Matthew's account of the same narrative, we'd have a couple of missing pieces. Matthew actually tells us that the disciples in the long part of the day had a, another plan. Jesus is wanting to do a miraculous thing. And the rest of the disciples seem to be wanting to send the multitudes home. It's kind of like a parent on a Sunday evening. You've had a whole week of cooking and on Sunday evening, you're just like, hey kids, I don't know what you're gonna eat. Not my problem, it's your problem. There's plenty of leftovers. You can put something in the oven, warm you something self in the microwave, fix you some plain nachos. I don't really care, I'm not cooking tonight. That's the disciples after a long day of ministry. Jesus wants to feed thousands and they're like, hey, can't we just send them all home to get something at home? That's, their, that's exactly what they're planning to do according to Matthew chapter 14, verse 15. Just let them go to their villages and fend for themselves. They can get a bologna sandwich. We don't really care. Get some sardines. Now, John, though, he tells us that while Jesus is testing Philip, there is another apostle 
that he has his eyes up and he's observing his surroundings. Matter of fact, he's looking for something. In verse eight of John six, it says, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother said to him, hey, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they gonna be for so many? He basically goes, hey, look, you guys are all gonna send everybody home. Hey, Jesus, I, I know you're wanting to do something significant. Hey, here's a boy, a young lad. He's got five loaves and two fish. I don't know what you're gonna do with this. But Andrew, listen, he has seen amazing things. He followed John the Baptist. He followed Jesus, the Lamb of God. He has seen Jesus do miraculous things. And he comes to him in a very humble way. The guy who never says the brash wrong thing like his brother does goes, hey, Jesus, here's a young boy. I don't know what you're gonna do with it, but I trust that you can. And he connects this young boy with Jesus. And we know the rest of the story because Jesus feeds the multitude with fish and loaves so much there that the gospel account tells us that they had to go get 12 basketfuls of what's left over. And you see that as that narrative continues. So Jesus connects Peter, he connects the young boy, but listen, that's not the last of his connecting. Matter of fact, turn over with me to the account of John chapter 12, go six more chapters. John chapter 12 is about a year later. About a year later, Jesus is preparing himself for the death and the crucifixion and the horrific death that awaits him. And it is there that a group of men approach Philip, you've seen his name again, and they want to know more about the Christ. And so in John chapter 12, beginning of verse 20, it says this, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So they come to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. So Philip and Andrew and Peter likely know each other because they are also from Bethsaida, lived there. And he asked, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Look what Philip does next, verse 22. Philip then went and told who? Andrew. Andrew. Like, why didn't Philip just take him to Jesus? That seems like the most logical, natural thing. And I presume to believe it's because he knew that Andrew, though he's not mentioned as the top three, Andrew has a very close connection with Christ. He's the one who first observed him. He's the one who first stayed at the house with him. He's the one that he introduced his brother to. And he is the one who knows Jesus very intimately. And Philip goes, hey, let me take you to Andrew. Andrew can take us to the Christ. And Andrew knew that not only Christ was savior, but Christ was, listen, interruptible. He knew that, that a, a young boy would not be a burden to Jesus. He knew in this particular case that the Greeks would not be overwhelming. So he tells Andrew, Andrew and Philip, then go and tell Jesus, verse 22, verse 23, Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Now, what's interesting, side note, I'm just gonna give this to you as a bonus, okay? And it's really cool. When you see this here, Andrew brings these Greek men to Jesus. It's as if Jesus has been waiting for this. And you might wonder, why does he care? Well, here's the deal. When Jesus came, Luke chapter 19, verse 10, he came to seek and to save that which is lost. Now, you might not realize it, but the Jewish people didn't think they were lost, but the Greeks would have thought that. And so would other Gentiles. And what Jesus is doing is he is about to say something significant. Matter of fact, let's read it. Jesus says this, verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. For whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the father will honor him. Jesus gives this illustration about a wheat falling and dying. And it's when you plant seed that something grows, right? So Jesus goes, look, I'm about to lose my life so that others might know me. It is fitting that he is sharing this with apparently Philip and Andrew and a handful of Greeks. 
Now you might ask the question, why is that relevant? Well, Jesus is telling these people, hey, listen, if you come and follow me, I'm gonna lose my life that you might gain life. And if you'll follow me and you'll become my disciples, you'll give my life, I will lead you to eternal life. Now here's the interesting thing. You might think Greeks. Well, where do they come from? Well, the Greeks came from the West. But do you remember at Jesus' birth who came? The Magi. Where did the Magi come from? The East. See, here it is at the birth of Christ, they come from the East, and from the death of Christ, they come from the West. Why is that? I think it's appropriate that when Christ gives his life, he says, come and follow me. See, Andrew knew Jesus so intimately that he could bring the Greeks, the Gentiles, to him. And ultimately, I think that's Ephesians 3.18 that you and I might know as Paul wrote to the church of Ephesus, the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of Christ. That is what the cross is, that he loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son. God extended his life, the life of Christ that you and I might come. And here's the good thing, whether you're Jew or Gentile, whether you're Greek or slave, barbarian, It doesn't matter, male or female. Paul wrote to the Galatians and says, anyone can be in Christ by one faith, by one Lord, by one baptism. We are all found in Christ. And Andrew knew that. See, Andrew was the connector of people to Christ. Now, here's what's interesting is when you think about Andrew, you might miss this connection because the Bible doesn't say anything else about him after that event outside of him being listed as the disciples in the early church. Other than that, he, he in some ways seems to fall away in anonymity. But Eusebius and a handful of other historians actually include what happens in Andrew's life, even though you don't see it in the Bible. There's a couple of different accounts, but let me just share one of them. Andrew takes the gospel north. He goes all the way up to Scythia, um, and Scythia is up where Russia would be. And matter of fact, just you know, in case you wanted some trivia today after lunch, you could ask somebody, it wasn't here. Hey, who's the patriot saint of Russia? Right, let me give you all one guess. Andrew. Um, who's the patriot saint today of Scotland? Oh, no, I missed it. That must have been too tricky. I didn't get too many answers. Okay. You're like, he's trying to trick me. Okay, I didn't hear anybody at Edgewood either. I'm like, okay, who's the patron saint of Scotland? Andrew. He takes the gospel north. Um, it, it is said that he dies in Achaia um, of a horrific death. Um, he is actually bound to a cross. Uh, but the cross was actually in the pattern of an X and it's called a saltier. A saltier is an X-shaped cross. Here's why, according to church history, that Andrew dies. Andrew leads a prominent Roman governor's wife to Christ. He connects her with the Lord. As a result, the Roman government becomes frustrated. This governor uh, wants his wife to recant. She won't. As a result of that, this governor has Andrew bound to a saltier, the X-shaped cross, in which he is strapped to the cross, not nailed to prolong his suffering. It is said that Andrew was on the cross for two days before he died. And while passerbys came, he continued to proclaim the Christ. And he knew that they needed him. Now, what's interesting is, you probably didn't know this, maybe you did. If you were to look at Scotland's flag today, you'll notice a blue flag with a saltier cross, X across it. It is called Andrew's Cross. And Scotland bears a national symbol of their saint patron saint Andrew today. And here's why, because the gospel went forth. Andrew didn't stop connecting people after he connected Peter and the young boy and the Greeks. He kept on. And though you don't see him as ever writing a prominent letter, you don't see him preaching to the thousands. Listen, in his anonymity, he continued to be exactly what God wanted him to be which I'll close with this quick three things. One is that you and I just need to know that you don't have to be out front to be significant. Like you don't have to have the the stage to be prominent. 
They're some of the most faithful followers of Jesus that will never take a stage. They'll never preach a sermon, but they might teach a Sunday school class. Matter of fact, I didn't share this in the first service, but you should just go look up how D.L. Moody came to know Christ. D.L. Moody, one of the most prolific evangelists in all of the world, has started multiple schools. Probably the most famous is the Moody Institute. He came to Christ because of a Sunday school teacher. And so I just will tell you that you don't have to be out front to be significant. And I think so much of what we live in today is a culture where we're fighting for significance. Like there's so many of us who we're not comfortable in our own skin, who we are not okay to beat to our own drum. We're always trying to beat to someone else's. And I think it's okay just to go, I'm just gonna be an Andrew. I'm just gonna, in some ways, live in the shadows. I'm, I'm gonna serve faithfully. I'm gonna continue to proclaim the good news of Christ. I'm gonna do what I'm called to do. I'm not gonna try to be someone else. I'm just gonna be Andrew. Matter of fact, isn't that what Paul really is sharing with the early church in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, when Paul writes the church of Corinth? Look what he says in 1 Corinthians 12. You don't have to turn there. I just want you to see it. I'm just gonna read a portion of it for the sake of time. But in verse 14, I'm gonna read up to about 20. It says, hey, there's one body, okay? For the body, and it doesn't consist of just one member, but of many, right? If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If we were all a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. I'm not gonna read it, but Paul goes on and he just says, hey, look, there's, there's more. Like the hand doesn't, you know, the eye doesn't say the hand, I don't have any need of you. And I think oftentimes we think that the most prominent part of the body is the mouth or the things that we bear witness to, we see. But listen, there are a lot of parts of the body that are very significant. And I would just tell you that today, maybe you don't see your significance. God does. And more than that, not only does God see it, but God needs your significance. And I think we oftentimes lose sight of what significance looks like. And I just want to tell you, that many of us in here are an Andrew. And, and you might look at me, and I presume that you do, and you might think, well, you're more like a Peter. And I get it because it's probably it's because of the foolish things I say. You know, like sometimes you're like, I cannot believe he said that. Um, listen, every Sunday afternoon, I second guess at least one thing I probably shouldn't have said. But look, in the grand scheme of the world and the global church, I may look more like an Andrew than a Peter. Let me explain it to you. There are a lot of, of pastors that are serving and they're not prominent. Likely they're never gonna write a book. They're likely not ever gonna preach at a conference to thousands upon thousands. They're just gonna continue to serve. And they're gonna serve with the temptation to leave to do something else. Uh, there's many of pastors that right now, they're serving in congregations where there's 15 people where there's 20 or 30 people. And there's many of them that have been doing that for decades. And you might look at them and you might look at the size of their church or maybe even their preaching ministry or the way that they just care for just a small group. And you might think, man, there's somebody more prominent. But I just tell you, look, prominence is not found in the size of something. Prominence is actually found in faithfulness. And what's incredible is to see that there are people like Andrew who are going to faithfully serve in local congregations and never be exclaimed or noticed. We live in a culture right now where many church members listen to prominent pastors than they do their own church pastor. We live in a culture right now that in many ways people are unsettled in the local church because they want so badly for their church to look like a mega church. And we're just continually unsettled, looking for the next popular pastor, looking for the next person that's gonna tell us what we wanna hear. And in some ways we, we, we take and we just kind of push the Andrew aside for the Peter. 
And in this particular case, I'm so thankful that that's never what happens. Jesus welcomes the Andrew and Andrew is content to simply be himself and connect one life at a time to his master. And friends, that's what the local church should be, which brings me to point number two. Listen, the size of your gift is not near as important as who you entrust the gift to. So think about that. When, when Peter has his ministry, you, you see him as, 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 as famous, preaches the message, 3,000 come to repent. When Andrew does something, you don't see it as significant. He connects a young boy, five loaves, two fish. He goes, Jesus, I don't know what you're gonna do with this, but I trust that you can. And Jesus feeds thousands. See, today, I don't know where you are in thinking of your significance, but what I want you to realize that God has created you significantly different than anyone else. He has not made a mistake And what you bring to him is not rendered useless if what you entrust to him is given to him and his power and his might through your life. Don't believe me? Think about how Jesus celebrates the widow and her might. In some ways, he disregards the one who brings all that he has. as a wealthy man and parades it in front of people. He goes, I'm not interested in that as much as I am the woman who gave all that she had. And friends, I'll just tell you, we live in a culture where, listen, we want prominence, but we want to give as little as we can to get the prominence. Like there's so many of us that we're not sacrificial in our lives and we want to, in some ways, be the greatest. You don't believe me? I'm going to give you an example next week of the Sons of Thunder who oftentimes argued about being the greatest. Andrew never argued, never is recognized as boastful, never seemed to complain about living in the shadow of his brother. He just was a faithful young man who brought everything he had and said, here it is. And maybe you're here today and you labor in obscurity. Maybe you even feel like, I just don't have anything to give or I have very little to give, so I give nothing. Let me just explain something real quickly to you. Lean lean in with me, church. Um, As we wrap up, I just wanna share a couple of quick things with you. One is Over the course of the last year, we had 296 donors. As of today, I know 297. Now, 297 donors, and to get on the donor list, just so you understand, you have to put your name on an envelope and you have to put at least a dollar in it, okay? So you put a dollar, you're a part of the 297. Now, we narrow that down. The 297 gifts that we received as a church came from 250 different families. And listen, just so you understand, the gifts could range from a dollar to thousands of dollars. Now, you might ask the question, well, why do you even say that? Well, I say that to say, look, whether you gave a dollar or $5 or $20 or $20,000, every gift that a person gives is significant when we entrust our resources to the master. And I think oftentimes we believe the lie that I'm giving something insignificant if I just give $5. But I'm just telling you right now that if every single person in this room who doesn't give anything to the local church just began somewhere, even if it was $5, it would be a rather significant thing. And the reason why you should give is not so that that we could have more staff or so that pastors could have bigger salaries. Just so real quickly, I just help you understand Right now, we do not pay our own people here at Stone Point that are on staff close to the national average. It's, 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 not, it's not even close. I oftentimes hear about firemen who are going in and, and listen, they should be paid adequately. But there is not a pastor on our staff that comes close to a first year pastor. Most of our staff doesn't come to a first year teacher. Just to put it in light, if you think, well, y'all want more money, so that, no, that's, this, so you can check me on it. Fact check me, we'll, we'll let you see the resources. I just want you to put it in case. There are most of you in here that will get out of college and you will make as much or more than the majority of people on our staff who have been serving in ministry for 15, 20, 25 years, okay? And in some ways you might go, that's despicable. And it is, I'll just be honest, it is. What's more challenging 
Is it when people will have to leave our church to go work in the community sector? And I can think of three staff people that we've lost in the last five years to go work in secular jobs. I'm like, that's crazy to me. Okay, that's not the rant. Here it is, okay? (laughs) What's more sad than that is that I was recently contacted by someone about just helping them in, in a particular ministry in the local school in which I'm like, we don't have the ability to do that right now. And here's why. Because right now, while we are fine financially, we are month to month. We are, we are not, it's not like we have loads and loads of resources coming in and we don't talk about money much simply because we entrust the Lord that one, we're gonna be wise to the resources, but number two, it's like, I don't want you coming and feeling guilted. And, and that's what you got from our message on salaries like that. Like, listen, that's not the point. I just want you to make clear that when you walk out of here, you're not missing the point. So here's the point. This week, I was contacted by someone else where they came and they sat down and said, hey, can we have 30 minutes with you? I was like, absolutely. They didn't know what they were coming about, but they basically shared with me that there is a need within a district within 10 miles of here that there's a backpack program that is not currently being funded. There's some challenges there. They're managing and have managed for years, but they're like, it's, it's just getting harder for us to do. And it's not funded through the church. We've gotten, or through the church, through the school, we've gotten some help. We're managing it. But teachers are having to either pay for it themselves or having to get some other friends involved. It's just something that is a huge need. And I'm like, hey, let me ask you this. What would it cost just to fund it? And they're like, I mean, we don't know for sure. I'm like, like, are we talking a thousand a month? Are we talking like 500? Oh no, it's not a thousand, maybe maybe three or 400 a month. And I go, we'll fund it. And she's like, what? I'm like, we're gonna fund it. Now look, I didn't ask the elders. I didn't ask any of our staff. I didn't even pray about it. And here's why, because I've been praying about it and I've been sharing with the elders. Like it's, just, it's, it's sad to me that I'm not able just to say, yes, we're gonna fund it. So I just went on faith. I said, yes, we're gonna fund it. And just real quickly, it's not in our budget, but we're gonna fund it. And let me tell you how we're gonna fund it. Every single one of us is going to come together and we're going to fund it. And we're gonna fund it in one day. And not only are we gonna fund that, we're gonna fund some resources that Edgewood ISD needs, uh, other districts in our area might need. We're gonna fund a, a church planter that we've been helping that we need to help more. Uh, we're gonna fund a strategic partner that's gonna help us get into 10 countries that we have not been funding the way that we need to. And we're gonna, we're gonna fund some people and we're gonna get back to some of the things that we say we believe in. We wanna talk about life change, then we gotta be a part of it. And here's the deal. The only way we do that is all of us go, we're gonna bring an Andrew-like gift. We're gonna connect people to Christ. Significant or not is how it's gonna work. And here's how it's gonna do. You got it? One Sunday, three weeks from now, there's another thing that's happening that Sunday. I don't see it as significant and most of you won't either because the Cowboys aren't there. The Texans aren't there. The Bengals aren't there. The Steelers aren't there. It's called the Super Bowl. But on that Sunday, we're going to raise over $30,000 in one day. Now you might go, is that possible? Yes. Uh, About three and a half years ago, we raised $850,000 in one year. On one Sunday, we raised over $200,000. If we wanna give, we can. All we gotta do is just do it. Part of the reason we don't do it is because I don't tell you the needs enough, right? But here's the deal, there are some needs and this is how we're gonna do it. Every single one of us, 250 families, are gonna get together and sacrificially over and beyond what we currently give, we're gonna give $199.99. Go ahead and round it up to 200. Don't write a check, $199.99, okay? 200 bucks, every single one of us are gonna do that and we're gonna blow $30,000 out, out of the water, okay? If we don't blow $30,000 out of the water, we probably all should seriously think about finding another church. Let me say that one more time. Do y'all understand what I just said? I'm not twisting your arm, I'm not manipulating, I'm just saying this is nothing. This is not a God-sized goal. This is just going, hey, this is how we do it. It'll take us no time. We'll fund these things, we'll praise God, and we'll move on to greater things ahead. And this is how we do it, $200. Now look, there's some of us in this room like, I do not have $200. And by faith, I could give it, but we're gonna have our lights turned off. And I would say, will you give 10? 
There are a lot of us in here, and the Bactil family is one of those, that by God's grace, we're going to give more than $200. We can, and we're going to. And so we're going to take the load. We're going to bear a burden from someone else that can't, and we're going to give a little more than that. I don't know if your number's 200. That's the number. For some of you, it's 15. For some of you, it's 20. For some of you, it's 50. For some of you, it's 1,000. For some of you, it's 5,000. I don't know what it is. I would ask that you would pray about it. And then you would say, Lord, here it is. And I'm gonna entrust you with it. That's what Andrew did. He connected people to the Lord. And that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna fund some backpack programs. We're gonna fund a couple of FCAs that are knocking it out of the park in our local districts that they need some resources. Like we're gonna do that. We've got dozens and dozens of kids in a couple of communities coming and they're hearing the gospel. And why not help that? We're gonna do that. Does that make sense? So that's what we're gonna give to and we're gonna do that three weeks from now, be praying about what that looks like, and we'll give you further details. Not a dime, not one dime is going to, to, to salaries, to light bills, to anything else other than life change. That's what you're giving to. Got it? Cool deal. Third point, for the sake of time, I'll make it very, very quick. Here's what you gotta know. Most people will never come to Christ because of a prominent preacher, but because of a personal relationship. It's a personal relationship. It's not prominent preaching. This last year, we had a couple over to our house. Uh, We had a meager place where we met. We ate a meager meal. We enjoyed our time together. And I got to share Christ with one of my friends and to which she came to trust Jesus. And we got to baptize her later in that year. For the last 13 years, I've had the privilege of sharing the gospel hundreds of times, hundreds of times. And I can look across this room and I can see dozens of people because of the graciousness of the kindness of God, one life at a time, who've come to know Jesus as a result of me just sharing the gospel. Friends, I reckon to believe that was Andrew's life. It was never recorded and likely you will never know who all I led to Christ and likely I will never know the impact I had because I've never preached a message and hundreds of people respond. I don't know that in the 22, 23 years of ministry, I've ever preached a message and I've seen 15 people come to salvation in one sitting. I've never seen that. I've never experienced that. But what I can tell you is that I've seen dozens upon dozens of people come to know Jesus because I shared the gospel in a simple, personal way. I'm asking, would you join me that this year? probably more important than your $200 three weeks from now, I would just ask the question, hey, will you share the gospel with a friend this year? Would you do me a favor? Would you walk out of this place or perhaps even in our closing song, would you write down three names of friends who don't know Jesus or who do know Jesus that are not actively following him? They've walked away from the church. They're frustrated and we don't even know why. Would you, would you be the kind of person like Andrew who says, hey, let me take you to not only Christ, but let me take you to a person so that y'all can resolve this and move on. See, listen, I believe wholeheartedly, look at me. I believe wholeheartedly that our community is better when more people are connected to the local church. And I just want you to understand that typically the way it works around here, I'm the last person to know anything. If you die Unless somebody tells me personally from your family, it is likely that I will not know till after your funeral. You're like, well, why? Well, I guess because I'm not that well connected. Or maybe y'all think I'm superhuman and I know everything. Maybe you think, well, he's browsing Facebook and he's just gonna get it that way. Probably not. Now you might ask the question, why is he even mentioned that? Well, listen, I don't know why people have left the church. I don't know who's mad at me. If they don't come to me, I don't know. And I can't solve what I don't know because I am merely an Andrew. I'm not prominent. I'm just a guy trying to serve my church well. And I'll presume to believe that's probably you too, right? You're like, I'm just trying to live life. I just want to honor God. I just want to stay out of some of the drama. And so you don't know all the things. Listen, I can't connect others to reconciliation if I don't know reconciliation's a need. 
So maybe it's you, or maybe it's a friend that you know, and you're like, man, they've wandered off, and, and maybe they have something against me. Will you bring them so that I can ask forgiveness? So that I can point them to my Lord? And maybe it's not me. Maybe it's someone else, or maybe it's you. The point is, is this, listen, you and I are the hands and feet of Jesus. And you may not be the guy here talking, but you are very important to the work of God. You are very significant, even in your differences. And I pray that church, we would have the greatest year we've ever had in the history of Stone Point Church this year. I've said that two Sundays in a row and I'm not gonna stop saying it. I'm not gonna stop encouraging you to share the gospel. I'm not gonna stop encouraging you to invite friends. I'm not gonna stop encouraging you to be gracious in your giving. I'm not gonna stop those things. And here's why, because God has put us in these communities for such a time as this. And if there's ever a time in the world that the world needs the church, it is now. May our community bear a witness and a flag, so say, because of a a group of people who believe so strongly in the message of Christ that it permeates and changes the way the city views the local church. And may it be us. And if not us, then who? And if not now, then when? You don't have to be a Peter to be significant. Matter of fact, I'll end with this. The last time I checked, there are two cities that live in rather obscurity across the state of Texas, and I would even say the world. Wills Point and Edgewood. And I don't see why they can't make a difference. I think they can, and I think they should, and I think they will. Will you join me? Will you join me in being all that God has for us? Connecting one life at a time, bringing young kids and saying, hey, meet the master. Bringing our siblings who maybe we have a contentious relationship with and saying, hey, come and meet the Christ. Bringing Greeks and Jews, slaves and free, rednecks, And white-collar elite, we can bring them all to Christ. Lord, may it be our time. May it be our time. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would encourage and remind us that we are more, we are more than just people who are here. We are your ambassadors. We are your hands and feet. We are the ones who reconcile the world to you. And Lord, we are not foolish to presume that we do that on our own. We only do it because of the blood of Christ. We only do it through the power of salvation through Christ and the help of the Holy Spirit. But Lord, there are so many of us who we identify with Andrew and we count our lives as insignificant. And here we are, Lord, we can be significant. The widow's might was significant. It was significant when you used Andrew, you you used other disciples that we know little about. Lord, I pray that we would realize that we don't have to be well-known to make a well difference. We don't have to be prominent to lead others to a positional relationship in Christ. I pray that you would teach us to walk in you. And how will people call upon the name of Jesus if they've never heard it? So Lord, would you help us to tell others And may we just be reminded as we close Romans 10, (coughs) how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Would you help us to love others? And would you help us to serve others? And would you help us to be a difference in our community, in our county, and across the world? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.